Welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Zara Ahmed, and you're here listening to some of the conversations myself and my co-hosts, Dr. Emma Kennedy, Jessica Crowley, and Emily Crosby have had with guests from around the world about consultation psychology. We all have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions of consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes and if you'd like any further information or interested in being a guest, please feel free to let us know and get in touch via email or Twitter. On today's episode, we're honoured to have with us Dr Daniel Newman. Danny completed his doctorate in school psychology at the University of Maryland College Park. He is currently an associate professor in the school psychology programme and Department of Human Services at the University of Cincinnati. His research, teaching and service focuses on school consultation practice, training and professional supervision, which we touch on during this episode. Among several professional service roles, Dr Newman is the current editor of the Journal of Educational and Psychological Consultation and is involved in leadership roles in the National Association for School Psychologists and Trainers. We really enjoyed speaking with Danny and we hope that you enjoy listening. I guess where Zara and I wanted to sort of start it is, is maybe at the beginning and just to hear a little bit more about you and your journey towards becoming a school psychologist. Well, thanks so much for having me on. And yeah, I um, got interested in the field of school psychology um, with a desire really to um, work directly with kids. I think a lot of us do, right? And making a difference with kids in uh, the field. And I had a lot of interest in counseling um, as well when I first started out at uh, University of Maryland for my PhD. And I had um, the year before actually was working in a residential treatment facility, um, which was a short-term program for kids 12 to 18, doing uh, kind of a behavioral treatment for them in a in this short-term residential facility um, outside of the uh, Boston area in Framingham. Um, and so these kids, all boys and girls, lived together in a house. Um, and I was a counselor and a supervisor within that setting um, and then transitioned into the doc program at University of Maryland for um, school psychology and, you know, had that mindset, how can I make a you know, big difference with the kids that I work with. And one of my early experiences was doing um, counseling work in a high school setting in Prince George's County in Maryland. And it was wonderful. And um, I I learned a ton. But at the same time, I had my first consultation course um, with Sylvia Rosenfield, and I was learning a lot about consultation service delivery. And I was getting a lot of referrals from teachers for individual students for individual counseling within the high school. And One morning I went in and I had um, 17 referrals for individual students and I looked and they were all from the same teacher. And at the same time, I was in a course, you know, on consultation, learning about how we can make a difference, you know, with one teacher, which impacts every student in the classroom. And I kind of thought, well, you know, where's the room for both types of service delivery? Um, And so then I started, you know, that really kind of shifted my perspective um, on, uh, you know, services that school psychologists can offer and the potential of consultation to make a difference. Um, In that setting, I wasn't quite able to shift because really the focus was on the counseling work, but I uh, really shifted my mindset kind of to that, that idea, the paradox of school psychology, the from um, Jane Close Connolly and Terry Gutkin, that the idea that to make a difference with kids, we need to focus our professional expertise on adults. That started becoming more of a focus as a student kind of it's early It's making on. me think about that, um, that really original kind of Kaplan kind of idea of needing to counsel the counselors. Um, mm, yeah. And yeah, just a really interesting way in. And it's also, I suppose, making me think a little bit about the skill set that you need to be a counselor versus the skill set that you need to be a consultant. And hopefully that's something that we might be able to come on to in a, in a little bit. Yeah. You mentioned, obviously, Sylvia and getting to work with her. And we'd yeah, love to hear just a little bit more about what were some of those things that you kind of were initially encountering that were you know, quite exciting, but maybe also some of the stuff that felt a bit kind of challenging? Yeah, I took a, a number of courses uh, with Sylvia over the years. Um, and Um, Yeah, as I I was talking about before, I really saw my perception shift in terms of thinking about frameworks, but I also just had so many opportunities. So there was being a student with her in the class, 
Um, but then um, she mentored my research on consultation, which, uh, you know, as my interests were developing, I dug in a little bit more and was uh, looking at instructional consultation teams and uh, supervision of consultation eventually for my dissertation. Um, I also later in my training was so lucky to become a, a graduate assistant for Sylvia within the courses she was teaching. So I think I got a lot of depth because I had my first iteration of the courses as a student in the course. And then as an advanced doc student, I got to help support the, the teaching and supervision processes a little at a time. So I didn't quite realize it, but Sylvia was doing what's called meta supervision and she was supervising my supervision. And so I was learning on like all these, you know, different levels um, and also rereading everything. So the things I read as, a, you know, second year doc student uh, at Maryland, you know, when I read it as a third year student or as a fourth year student, you know, for getting more out of it or looking at it in a different way as my experiences increased within school settings and as I was doing more consultation work. So that was a part of it. I think another piece that also kind of realizing later on in retrospect that I was just so lucky about. I think Sylvia and the other faculty at Maryland did this amazing job of establishing partnerships with the schools around the area. So I had a consultation specific practicum experience where I was doing other things, but really there was an emphasis on the consultation work. And it was in a school that had a, a variation of um, instructional consultation teams there. It had grown as IC teams, instructional consultation teams, and then was kind of doing that same work. So they knew the consultation role. They knew what training I was getting at Maryland and then really embraced me. Um, and so uh, that one of the uh, districts, Howard County um, Schools, was where I did my internship. And um, I was able to then, because I had all these experiences, kind of step in and have more advanced experiences within that realm. So I was doing things like providing trainings um, for staff, you know, collaboratively with others, I was able to do coaching of people who are learning consultation within the schools of teachers, I even um, coached a principal when I was an intern, it's supporting him to learn about the instructional consultation model. So I had these like really cool, unique opportunities. And I think like, I knew I was lucky and knew I was getting so much, but I think like in retrospect, you know, all these years later, really recognized that how lucky I was to have uh, Sylvia as a mentor and continue to, you know. Um, yeah. I, just for people who may be a little bit less familiar with instructional consultation yeah. or working in an instructional consultation team, obviously those who have that kind of model in mind will be very, very familiar. But if there was something that you wanted to just share a little of that would, um, how, how might mm -hmm. instructional consultation be a bit different to other models or, you know, how yeah. might it be the same? Yeah, I think um, the, you know, there's a num number of assumptions and aspects of um, instructional consultation to talk about. I think one of the, the big ones is the idea of instructional match um, and some supporting students to have an instructional match within the classroom. And Ed Gickling's work and Todd Gravois or others in that area in terms of thinking about instructional assessment as part of the process, but really the idea of a student comes to the table with their prior knowledge, their prior experiences, their culture, all the things that they're bringing to the table. And I think often as educators, we focus on that corner of the triangle. But if we could think about how the student comes in to um, be uh, expected to complete a certain task within the scope and sequence of the curriculum. And then that uh, task is bridged with instruction. What are the teacher's practices um, that help the student be ready to, um, you know, to complete that task? And so we need to kind of be thinking about all three corners of those of the instructional triangle at a given time in order to create an instructional match. Um, it's really an ecological um, you know, perspective. And I actually think um, Sylvia had Uri Bronfenbrenner in a course in undergraduate, and that kind of inspired in a way, if I'm getting this right, uh, part of her thinking with the model eventually, um, you know, that idea that the ecological perspective and lens needs to be centered here. So we can't just look at the child corner of the triangle um, and uh, end up thinking about a broken child um, or a problem child or within child deficit. We need to think about how the child fits into the context and specifically to, you know, thinking about school psychology, it's about an instructional context within the school. So that's such an emphasis, you know, in Sylvia's work um, that, you know, I've really taken with me. We need to have knowledge of 
um, the school system. We need to have knowledge of instructional practices, academic supports, behavioral supports, because those are the things that we're consulting on. We can get lost in over-focusing on pathology or within child deficits, but we're really missing the big picture of where students are embedded. You have that lovely phrase in, in the um, building competence in, in consultation around admiring the problem and that, that sense potentially of how overwhelmed we can the system can be um, about some of the challenges that children and families are facing. That, that idea of what can I actually have some agency and kind of control over can sometimes get get a little bit lost. I think that's right. I think also that's part of that, that consultee centeredness and framework, um, which, you know, I think, I, I think of instructional consultation as a consultee centered model in the idea of that it's empowering. Um, we can work together with consultees to be empowered, to change, to, um, you know, gain the knowledge and skills and confidence and new perspectives or objectivity to tackle problems in a different way to kind of go back to the, you know, Kaplan and mental health consultation model and and those aspects of it. So um, uh, I think empowering to um, consultees in the sense that like, okay, so I'm, you know, teachers work so hard, they are, they should be entitled to have opportunities for professional learning. And I think in a lot of buildings, um, it's hard to be vulnerable. Um, the culture may be that teachers close their doors, uh, you know, when they're teaching and there's not ongoing um, observation of instruction of each other or it feels evaluative. So I think as consultants, um, we could really make it an opportunity where um, the consultee is allowed to be vulnerable. It can be a learning opportunity. We should be vulnerable as consultants and be, you know, the, I'm learning too from this and let's figure this out together. And, and that kind of mentality is part of it. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, you know, you've already touched on two different kind of types of consultation and there's so many different types. I think it was instructional and then consultee-centred. And you've done quite a bit of work on consultee-centred consultation, I believe. And I'd kind of like to know what, what drew you to that or what kind of captured you. Sure, yeah. Um, I've always felt like that, um, like a consultee-centred model aligns really well with who I am <laughs> personally. Um, and... Uh, you know, some of, some of that is about um, this embedded humility that's a part of it that I, now I'm like patting my back. I'm the most humble person in the room, right? But um, the idea that uh, humility is a part of that process, the idea like I don't need to know um, everything. I There were times as I remember early on in um, graduate school where, um, you know, uh, I would do a, an evaluation of a student and present at a, a meeting with parents or whatever. And sometimes in my head, I'm kind of feeling like, do I really have I really, you know, captured this feeling a little bit phony with some of the things that I was doing. And I feel like there's a genuineness to say, like, I don't need to know everything. I, I have expertise, but I'm not using an expert model to convey my expertise. I have things to share, but you also have a lot to share. And so that always drew me to the consultancy center model. And then I think some of the pieces like Emma mentioned earlier from Kaplan's early work, uh, you know, he describes his work in Israel um, after World War II and after the Holocaust, the idea of, you know, supporting his uh, team to gain new skills to make this wider impact. So I think of it as a form of prevention. And, you know, in, in the last couple of years, that's really been on my mind with with COVID and, and so many other things going on in the world that such a, a process, you know, has the opportunity to make ripples, to make a larger impact than if we just try to put out fires one problem at a time. So I think all those things have dr drawn me into, you know, having that, the consultee centered perspective. The other piece I didn't say is like just the relational aspect that's implied mm -hmm. there. Like I, I always value the, um, you know, the importance of, having a relationship that's, you know, has some trust as part of it, because that allows for that vulnerability um, that allows for us to engage in effective problem solving where we're, you know, we could really dig in together. Mm. It's so interesting. I was just thinking about um, that bit about what aligns with my values and how do you come to know yourself as a consultant in training mm. so that you can have a sense of, well, what sort of framework or model might help me live those values in a, in a sort of a, a really authentic and real way um, mm -hmm. and, and getting to know the self in the context of the role feels so profoundly tied up with that. The other thing that I was, I was just wondering, Zara, about whether you'd recognize this, about when, when Danny was talking about um, 
the humility that one might need to be able to say and, and the vulnerability like I don't know about that it was making me think about the seesaw that um Edgar Schein describes mm. about being in the one up one down and yes. in that initial kind of meeting maybe particularly I was wondering Danny about for relatively novice consultants I don't know in your experience how easy or difficult I mean Dara's right there so she'd be at the best mm. place to kind of share but how hard maybe because you're new and so desiring to be helpful that the idea of being able to say I don't know or to not be kind of compelled to be because you're trying to level out the seesaw yeah just those thoughts around kind of how that how easy or difficult it can be to take up that more humble position when you're only just starting out yes I think that's very I think it's true um for being new to it you feel a pressure to want to have the right answer (laughs) you feel a pressure to want to help um and to help right away um, teachers work so hard and are so busy. And when you see a concern that comes up and you, so, um, in the motivational interviewing, um, literature, I think there's a term like the, the writing reflex and the idea of resisting the writing reflex, the idea that you want to make it right, but we need to resist that a little bit. And so I do know, you know, from the literature, there are, um, some indications that if we offer advice prematurely and offer suggestions too early, um, and start going in our direction that the process can really break down really quickly. Um, I think my, so my wife is a third grade teacher and I think of one time she, she came back and um, in, from a consultation, and the, the consultant um, said something to the effect of like, have you tried moving her chair? And she was like, of course I've tried, <laughs> you know, and it can, it, you know, it could really like derail things and be damaging to the relationship because it's presumptuous to think that I know better, especially if I don't have the understanding of the context or the situation yet. So I, I put the emphasis on um, asking the right clarification, uh, the right clarifying question up front. I tell my students, ABC, always be clarifying. Um, to start with figuring out what um, information I need. So you referred to Shine. One of his really powerful examples is, um, I forget exact, you know, the exact reference, but he says in in the Boston area, somebody, you know, could come up and say, how do I get um, to Massachusetts Avenue? And he would say, well, tell me where you're, where are you trying to go? And they might say, oh, I'm trying to go, you know, to, to this location. Well, going on Mass avenue right now is not the best option because it's going to be filled with traffic so it might actually be better if you go in this other direction so instead of just offering the solution you know taking that one more question one more step to make sure i understand um and then when you do offer it's in a humble you know this is one suggestion uh, you know i wonder what you think about it or i'm wondering if this might be something that's helpful but uh, you know you know your context better than i so that's the the seesaw bring you know one downsmanship and kind of doing that in a gentle way so, you know, I think sometimes there's a misconception of consultee centered consultation, the idea that almost like you don't need the expertise because it's your the other person has the expertise in the context. I, I think both parties bring that expertise and it's just about how you share that and when, you know, is the best timing to share that. Mm. Um, so those are some of my thoughts there. Mm. Um, the other piece I would say, I would add one, one more piece, um, which is kind of a mantra from early on of just trust the process that as a new um, consultant, novice consultant, sometimes think like, oh my gosh, I just want to help right away. But also somewhere else on their, you know, in their head is there's this process that I'm supposed to be following, knowing like if I follow this, it's, it will likely work. So I need to trust what, you know, what I'm learning and try it out and see how this goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I know we'll talk about supervision later, but I think it's a supervisor's, um, role there too, to kind of provide that support and an additional layer of reflection on, okay, it actually is time for you guys to think about moving forward right now. I think you have all the information or, um, wait, you know, do we, do you even know what the problem is <laughs> that you're working on? Um, yeah. you know, supervisors can really help reflect with a new consultant on those things. Mm. I could see Zara, you nodded a little bit with mm-hmm. that kind of when when Danny was talking about being new to consultancy and kind of what can be going on in schools. And did that kind of sound a little bit familiar? Yeah, I think I've had very varying experiences in the sense there's some teachers that will sit with you and kind of go through the process, and you know you can ask your clarifying questions and you can kind of hold the space, I guess, and, and be present for the teacher. And, and, mm-hmm. and there are other experiences where 
teachers do want solutions because they're tired and yes. they're overworked and they're like just just tell me what to do um, yeah. and I guess I'm wondering as in the consultee centered consultation how you kind of if that's a barrier and how you kind of sit with that yeah yeah it, it's it is a challenge um I I've been known to say something to the effect of like I don't have a magic wand, uh, you know, um, uh, I wish I had a, a silver bullet that was going to solve this problem, but it's, you know, it's a, it's complex. Let's think about it together and we'll figure this out. I don't think it's going to take forever for us to figure out something that we could try. Um, there are times that I might say, you know, here's something maybe we'll try right now, but let's keep this going and, and evaluate it and see how it's working. So you can work together to kind of find an immediate, you know, it's like uh, something right away that we could do, but that doesn't mean that's all that we're going to do. Um, so there's some movement forward and the teacher or other consultee can see that movement forward, but you're staying true to the process where we we're still figuring this out. So that might be, you know, okay, let's figure out something that will help manage this behavior that's causing trouble or um, something with this classroom difficulty that you're having. And then let's like look a little bit further and make sure we're, we're doing this right and that this is going to work, you know? So I think those are some of the pieces, but I do think it's, you know, even when you feel that pull, it can be appropriate to still slow down a little bit. There are also times when there's a crisis situation or things that demand an immediate solution. So kind of having the judgment to know, like, this is a circumstance where we need to figure this out right away. Um, this is not a time for a process oriented, you know, approach or model. That's important too. I think there's something really hopeful and together in what, you know, the, the idea of let's, I don't have the answer, but we can try and figure this out together. And there will, because I, I think imbuing hope into systems like Zara's talking about how stressed, I mean, it was a very stressed system, I would have said anyway, you know, schools in the community context anyway. And then if you add in everything that's happened yeah. in the last few years, it's only gotten even more complicated rather than less. Yes. So to kind of inject some hope, uh, but realistic hope into the system feels like a really important part of what we might be able to, mm -hmm. to offer. Yeah. Well said. One thing that you mentioned there was the sort of ecological focus of, of consultation and some of the links that, you know, some of your mm -hmm. work has made about the focus on both the ecology of the classroom and the kind of community that children and teachers are, are, are learning and working and growing together in, but also the link between that and the sort of social justice advocacy side mm. of the the psychologist's role yeah I, I think Zara and I were, were really interested in your thoughts on the potential of consultation as a tool that could support us in achieving a more kind of just a more fair like a more inclusive community really for for children and families ultimately yeah any thoughts on the place of consultation in in creating that more socially just environment yeah I think it's it can be really well aligned um I look at um, Dave Schreiberg's work, for example, and um, his time as editor as, at, at the Journal of Educational and Psychological Consultation and um, a special issue he did. I, I can't remember if it was before he was editor during that time, but uh, there's lots of pieces, I think, that link with that idea of a um, consultant role and a consultee-centered consultation perspective and other models that or, you know that have that same framework like instructional consultation that um, reorient things towards the um, the larger system and so part of that is even from the beginning about entry into a system as a consultant and I think so I, I teach the introduction to school psychology course at University of Cincinnati um, for my students in the first couple of weeks I focus in that course on not the you know roles and functions of school psychologists but on let's talk about schools and and what that means and I bring social justice into that okay let's look at the definition from the National Association of School Psychologists and think about what that means let's think about how we would um, evaluate how our schools are functioning are there disproportionalities that we can see and then we could start to think about you know becoming a part of the system and how you know eventually we would be able to make impacts um, through our role as school psychologists and specifically through um, consultation um, I think I could see it also from both the you know more individual level consultation working with an individual teacher who might see something different with a student um, uh, you know one example, I had, uh, I was, I think I was a supervisor in this instance, but a teacher who looked at, uh, who was working with um, one of our grad students at Maryland and the 
the uh, student was really successful in uh, books that had a theme around Mexico. And he was doing way more successful because he had the prior knowledge in that area. And he was a, an English language learner from Mexico who had immigrated uh, to the United States. And the teacher said, well, I can't only do have them read books about Mexico. And it's like, wait, you're missing <laughs> the point here. But we could, you know, through the consultation eventually kind of shift some perspectives around that to the ecological lens, right? And so that might change that teacher's practices. And that might come up in the, you know, team, the, the grade level team. But then from the flip, we could also be thinking about systems level or organizational consultation. You know, hey, I noticed um, these data and bringing it to a building principal about um, disproportionality and discipline practices. Here are some things I'm seeing that, you know, in terms of racial um, disproportionalities, and I think we need to deal with this. What are your thoughts on that? How might we approach it? And then, you know, almost the principal or another administrator as the consultee and working together to make a, a change top down within the system. So I think I could see it in um, coming from different directions that would help uh, achieve a social justice um, purpose to support kids and families. That's really amazing. I just have a really clarifying question <laughs> and yes. do school psychologists in america only work in one school or no. do they work across multiple <laughs> schools it depends on the um it depends on the uh the district and assignments and stuff but it's a whole variation you know a whole variety um, the National Association of School Psychologists has a suggested ratio, which uh, they just updated in the 2020 standards. It used to be one to 750, one school psychologist to 750 students. And I think it's even smaller now. And, you know, to achieve that, you would think, well, probably one or two buildings. And so some people do have that, um, but other people are across multiple buildings. And certainly that affects um, service delivery. There's realities, you know, if you're in multiple buildings, the ability to enter the systems, to get to know people, to do the things that might be the, you know, lay the foundation for strong consultation become more challenging. Because I was just wondering how, if you are situated in one school, how it kind of impacts, I guess for me, something I find as a trainee, it's quite difficult when you get, have a really good relationship with the school and you get quite close to that school, how to then challenge them on stuff like, well, actually your behavior policy needs a bit of changing because mm -hmm. that impacts your relationship. They're suddenly like, oh, but no, you're here for us. Yeah. <laughs> and you do what we tell you to do. <laughs> so yeah, I guess that's where that thought was kind of coming from. Yeah, yeah, I think part of that systems change, that's, you know, in part, I think systems change takes a lot of time, you know, to, to um, or potentially does. Uh, from, you know, Sylvia's book with Todd Gravois on instructional consultation teams and uh, quoting some of the older literature on um, organizational uh, consultation, the idea that ch change is a process, not an event. Um, and I think part of that process is the to be a part of the system in which change is going to happen. And I noticed for my own students, that could be frustrating because we're teaching them about all these exciting things and saying like, you know, there are problems and we need to be, you know, advocates for social justice and, and change uh, for some of the things that are not going well. And they're ready to get in there and, and do this work. But part of it, you know, well, we need to have the uh, right relationships within the system to, to do that uh, effectively, I think. It's making me think about people often trained to become psychologists because they love people, they love relationships with other people, they want to be helpful, and yeah. they're quite interpersonally kind of... Um, that's where they feel a lot of, of joy and, and connection. And then when you're taking up a kind of a, a, a consultation relationship, it's not the same as a friendship or right. a supervisor, all those other kinds of relationships. You may be drawing on the same skills, but the boundaries around what it is that you're trying to do are slightly different. And that whole idea of you become overly reliant on being super warm, super responsive, mm -hmm. very empathic, that actually what can get lost within that is the kind of relating in role. And actually I'm here as the consultant to support, you know, and, and trying to hold a um, draw on those skills, but not get so close to it that you lose the sort of sense of actually a back and forth with each other, uh, especially actually around things like disproportionality or structural inequality that's being noticed as well as you know kind of individual acts of discrimination that may take place in relation mm -hmm. to a colleague a, a parent a family a, a child a young person it's it's quite something to ask anybody to say mm -hmm. yeah have all of your relational skills but don't quite do this bit or try hold that mm -hmm. bit a bit you know it's yes there's a lot of complexity 
um, within schools right? as an understatement and then navigating uh, professional relationships, um, especially if within the context of the work you're doing, part of the problem that you're uh, perceiving or thinking about um, has to do with inequalities or uh, racism or mm-hmm. other um, aspects of um, of that that are, are coming to the forefront, or at least that you're thinking about. I do mm-hmm. think that could be really challenging, especially as you're learning um, these skills. Um, and trying to apply them um, in your work. But I do think having, you know, that um, thought of the uh, personal and professional balance too can be helpful, knowing that it is a professional um, relationship and then trying to also kind of think through the balance of um, if we build bridges through our professional connection here, will that help change something that's, you know, not going right where there seems to be some sort of um, discrimination or unconscious bias in this classroom, as far as I'm seeing it and starting to think about this problem. Can I start to give that feedback within the context of our relationship um, because we've established trust and it's something that can help um, shift some of the practices versus, you know, calling someone out um, right away within that consultation and then, um, you know, and then the relationship falls apart. But I do think it's a tricky balance because there are probably times where that's appropriate (laughs) to do. Um, But I also think like, I I have that like ongoing change in my mind. Like if I can make a bigger shift, that might be long-term way more impactful for way more kids. So I think it's, can be a balance um, that's tricky. One thing I suppose I was interested in as well, kind of drawing together a couple of things that that we've spoken about so far is one was around self-awareness and knowing who you are um, because you're doing something that fundamentally is relational. It is communicative. So you need to know and understand yourself as someone who relates to other people. You need to know and understand yourself as a communicator. Mm. But within all of that, the cultural kind of loading about what relationships can look like, depending mm. on your worldview. And the, I guess kind of linked to that really is the place of supervision for consultants, I guess, maybe as a starting point from there. Yeah, just about any thoughts that you have about how supervision can support a consultant in understanding themselves a bit more and how instead of kind of going, well, there's something must be wrong with these people because they're not kind yeah. of relating in the same way or communicating in the same way. How is there a place for supervision in helping a consultant understand themselves differently in the, in, in the, in the work? Yeah, I think that's a really key part of supervision. And I, I actually find it, uh, I love teaching consultation and having the students within that context because that's part of the, um, you know, part of that training and supervision processes. Um, it's not just about your content knowledge, which is really important. You know, you're going to need to know the problem solving stages and the order in which they're delivered and the business of each stage and, and these different pieces of the content um, and what are, you know, potential interventions within when you get to the intervention stage. But it's about the process skills. And um, part of that is, being, you know, having a self-awareness of how you're communicating and relating to others. And as a supervisor, if I watch a video of a supervisee um, interacting and I pick up on something that maybe they didn't see um, because there's a blind spot or um, other way, we can talk about that within supervision. And, and, you know, I have a similar to having a consultee centered lens, I have a supervisee centered lens, too. So hopefully there's an established connection in which um, feedback can be delivered and received in in an effective way, you know, around that. And so that helps. you know, the, the consultants in training that are learning this process to start to um, have um, increased self-awareness. I think even just the strategies that you use in, supervis- in supervision, I don't know about you uh, both. I hate watching myself on video or listening to myself. I don't know if I'll listen to this podcast afterwards, <laughs> um, but it is um, really a critical part of, you know, continued improvement. Um, so, if you have the self-reflection and some moments of discomfort when you're listening back, plus someone else who's um, presumably got some objectivity around um, the uh, you know the work that you're doing and can listen in and with a with a different ear, an additional um, you know lens, then um, I think that helps the growth 
process. The, one of the strategies on the on our course is video enhanced reflective practice, where the you know students learning consultation are in small groups of four and they consult to each other. It's recorded, kind of apply the principles of attunement and try to. But I yeah, sorry. I suppose that point about um, learning about yourself through watching yourself will be then a very familiar and very recent experience for for you. Danny's point about how it can be quite awkward and yet also incredibly helpful. I would say that it's not something I've done this year, but actually, you're making me think that it could probably be quite useful because it was one of my things that I wanted to work on. These my consultation skills, and, you mm. know supervisors are also really busy and trying to get them to come and watch you do supervision isn't yeah. uh, what you do in consultation isn't always the easiest thing either because then the other person might feel awkward and bring an extra dynamic into it yeah, yeah. When Danny mentioned blind spots, though, I think in a way, if it's a blind spot, how can you can't bring it to supervision, can you? Because if you could, then it probably isn't something that you don't know about yourself. So having both another person, but also some other data that yes. can kind of get into supervision feels whether I would say I'm at ease with just recording myself <laughs> bringing it is, is a whole other story. But um, yeah, I, think, I can see um, this, the value. Yeah, well, we know, you know, from uh, looking at what people do, supervision largely um, consists of self-report right? mm, and yeah. talking about, you know, here's the cases I'm working on or, yeah, I feel like I'm getting better as a consultant. You know, I had more confidence in the in the last time I met with this teacher or like I feel like I'm more effective or whatever pieces, but it's more anecdotal reporting at times. It's more and it's all like if you don't have the um meta competence knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know um there's a big limitation and so having some form of either you know watching or recording or like if you have a sacred you know here's our supervision time um that we're meeting this week instead of meeting one-on-one to talk about stuff i'm going to observe you in the consultation i'm not going to talk as your supervisor i'm just going to be there if you know you need me to speak up i will but otherwise i'm just there to observe and then you have that, you know, session and you were observed and then you and the supervisor can talk about what happened um, during that consultation where it's direct observation of your um, consultation. Yeah. And you have then that shared sort of sense of what actually happened as opposed to what I think happened and, yeah. and can think about that together. Um, just for those people who are kind of listening and thinking, okay, supervision and okay, consultation, but actually in some respects they have similar sort of mm. or can sound quite similar um are there things that you would particularly highlight to people to kind of try and say yes here are some of the similarities between say offering supervision to teachers in schools versus offering consultation and just some of the distinctive features between them yeah um so i think of consultation as um non-hierarchical by the way, you know, in the way that I'm thinking about it and as also a voluntary process and also non-evaluative. And, um, you know, some of those things can kind of get a little hazy at times. Like, is it really non-hierarchical if I'm in a consultant role? Well, it depends on how you approach it, I think. Um, And, you know, we've talked, we've hit upon that a little bit, but supervision, um, you know, is by definition evaluative. Um, and so that's really a cornerstone of the supervision process. Um, and so that hierarchy is kind of um, built in. I do think there can be overlaps sometimes, for example, like a peer supervision process or peer supervision model may look actually uh, more like a consultation. I think a lot of the skills that I use as a consultant are similar to the skills that I use as a supervisor. And also, you know, when I'm counseling, some of those skills would overlap too, just basic um, listening skills, um, the clarifying, the paraphrasing to make sure I understood the, um, you know, perception checking or reflecting feelings if there's emotion that comes up, but, um, you know, they are distinct. Um, I do think another overlap is the, the opportunity for learning. So I think, um, both, um, I think like the simple way to say is like, oh, a consultee learns and a supervisee learns, but I actually think of both as bi-directional learning processes. Like the consultant should be learning and kind of thinking about how their perspectives are shifting during the consultation. And so, and a supervisor too should be, you know, learning from the supervisee um, during the process. 
It's interesting that you bring up the idea of consultation as as voluntary because um, lots of services in the United Kingdom have adopted consultation as their model of service delivery. So it's Mm. not as in that's how the educational psychology service are providing their service to the kind of local patch of of schools and and providers. Um, And I was wondering about how it might be different if somebody felt, well, this is how I receive a psychological service. So that's what's happening versus I've specifically chosen to engage in a consultative relationship with somebody and how. I think part of it is the the voluntary nature of whether I'm going to do what we talked about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) um, It's like, well, you gave me the suggestion and that is, you know, clearly not going to work in my classroom. So I'll smile and nod in our meeting, but I'm not going to do it. Yeah. You know, ultimately, the consultee has responsibility for, um, you know, what we what's to be implemented. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe the consultant has a part of that. And that's appropriate, too, um, at times. But, uh, you know, the consultee has to decide, is this going to work? If not, um, maybe they won't do it. And so I think yeah. there's a breakdown sometimes um, here um, in the States. I've seen it where, um, you know, a teacher consultee will go to a problem solving team meeting and they'll say like, oh, you know, okay, here's a suggested intervention for what you're bringing up to the team. And then the, no one will follow up with the teacher for several weeks and it wouldn't have been done and, and so forth. And then there's kind of that breakdown because there wasn't support. So I think of consultation as, you know, that having that ongoing um, support process embedded as part of it too. Um, mm-hmm. But we need to think about the context um, for which the um, consultee is asking for help and be mindful of that. And this kind of goes back to Shine again and and his work with process consultation and thinking about a process consultation model where we think about the context um, and take that into consideration. Because even if we have a really wonderful intervention to offer, if it doesn't fit within the realm of what the consultee is able to do, whether they don't have the time to do it, they don't have the knowledge yet, they don't have the um, skills, they're not competent in, in doing so, um, you know, or other factors, it's a, there, there might may, may be a breakdown. So anyway, I, I kind of think of voluntary in that way too. Mm, right? Yeah, yeah, choice. for sure. And I'm not sure whether um, it was making me think about Ingrid Highlander's work about yeah. turnings and the idea you can have a, a consultee who just sits there going, yeah, okay, yep, yep, yep. But mm-hmm. really there has been, that sense of a turn hasn't really happened. But as consultants, many people might walk out of that and think, I've really affected change there and they sound really keen, but actually we've kind of misread um, and something hasn't quite kind of um, aligned, I guess, um, there. And, Um, and, you know, and what happens is then we tend to think of, well, this teacher's resistant, right? Which is a term I don't really love um, because it's maybe that they're realistic about their setting. They're realistic about what they can and can't do. Uh, maybe it wasn't the right solution, um, you know, so uh, maybe we're resistant to what they wanted to do or what yeah, fit well, that for idea them. that you're willing to kind of change how you see things mm-hmm. and you're willing to be a learner in the consulting relationship is is part of that, isn't it? There, this mm-hmm. idea that all the system needs is for us to come along and help us. Um, and it's a one way kind of traffic is is probably quite an ill served sort of thing to to try and take up and apply um one thing that you mentioned about emotions and that kind of point about counseling and I suppose yeah one thing I was wondering about from just kind of being around teachers and 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 principals head teachers here is the emotional weight of of teaching um and I don't just mean you know the actual emotional factors associated with teaching and learning but all of the other stuff that comes with thinking truly about the vulnerabilities of some of the children and young people or or staff within the school and community I don't Zara and I probably aren't as familiar with with the states but in the UK there isn't really a kind of a culture of supervision for teachers in schools as a kind of a like the same way that you might have for psychotherapy or social work you know where there is this sort of default understanding that yes supervision is something that's offered and how consultation then sometimes can be one of the only spaces a teacher may be afforded where the emotional sort of like frustration, anger, obsess, um, worry 
concern about um, a, a child that they have in their classroom, it might be the only space that they have to bring any of that feeling to. Um, is that similar in the States or is, is there much better kind of emotional support for teachers built into the system? I think it's um, probably idiosyncratic at some level, depending on your school and your system. I do know there's just, you know, really high levels of teacher stress and um, burnout right now um, for, you know, a number of reasons. And um, so, you know, I, I see the potential for consultation in that way that you're describing it. Unfortunately, I don't know if that's the reality because I don't know that um, it's uh, as prevalent as it could be or maybe should be um, as the service delivery option. And I also think that um, that there's the risk of thinking that this is just another thing I need to do. Um, so I think, you know, as consultants, we have to figure out the way that it does become that opportunity for professional learning and support and where the, you know, consultant is a sounding board and um, problem solving support where it makes pragmatic differences in the work. Because if we're talking about, you know, an ongoing process, like Sarah, you talked about before, like a teacher who's like, you know, really busy and feeling burnt out and, you know, so much going on and we're just adding one more thing to their plate, that's not going to be appealing. But if, you know, we're doing meaningful work and it's making a difference. So I think, you know, the the system has to be open to it. The person delivering it has to kind of know what they're doing with the consultation and, and how to engage in it effectively. And, um, and, and then it needs to have some positive outcomes, both yeah. for the uh, consultee and then for the um, student or students that are coming up as part of the um, request for help. Yeah, it's the the reflecting feelings can be really challenging, especially for I found that with um, students that are learning to consult, that could be a big challenge because you kind of don't want to go there. <laughs> and so it's easier to let things, you know, uh, just pass by if you hear that frustration or something that's upsetting or whatever, to then just ask the next question. Oh, so tell me more about when this happens <laughs> instead of recognizing it. And so that that basic listening skill of a, a reflection of feelings of, wow, that does sound really frustrating or, you know, wow, it does sound like you really have your hands full, um, you know, and then kind of bonding and moving. That's what um, the term would be like a bond and move. Let's connect on that, uh, make, make sure to recognize it. And then let's keep on moving forward and problem solving. And I think sometimes new consultants will just go to the move without bonding first. And I think the series of kind of allowing for ventilation, allowing for those things to come out, but then not overdoing it, um, where we come back to the, you know, to moving forward and problem solving. I find that really interesting because actually my background is also in counselling and I find it quite difficult the opposite way around. <laughs> so more like getting sucked into and I'm like, oh, I don't want to move on to the next question because actually I, I want to be able to validate yeah the teacher or the parent or the young person and somehow then moving forward seems a bit more difficult um mm. actually and I'm kind of wondering how maybe you kind of pass it because your background is also in counseling well I yeah I mean I um enjoyed the counseling role and that's really where I thought what I thought I wanted to do so I think like the communication skills part is really a significant overlap there and being a good listener and so I'm imagining sometimes I think in like in terms of the pendulum, you know, of like how how much are you really doing it? Sorry, I, I, I would imagine you're not going too far. Um, and so, I, you know, I don't have a precise answer where it stops and finishes um, and it depends on the circumstance and stuff. I remember one instance where I was supervising a student uh, who had a teacher who was, you know, quote unquote, resistant to response to intervention was was new in the school and um they were having conversations around it and there was some sort of context with the student um, within that process, but the teacher kept on venting about response to intervention um, within the system, this new initiative there, um, you know, it's taking up so much time and I'm learning it and, um, and really what the student needs is a special education evaluation. And so part of my role as the supervisor was to help the student allow for that room because she kept on going back to the problem solving, like how do we support the student? you know, we don't know that the student needs special education evaluation yet. We need to figure out how to provide an intervention. And she kept on going back to offering information about that and saying, well, before we get there, we have to do this, you know, I think allowing for a little bit more room for um, the teacher to kind of say, this hasn't worked for me. This is why 
to get to the point like, well, will you give it a try? Here's some things that I'm thinking about. How does that work for you? You know, and kind of shifting it would have been more helpful. But I struggled as a supervisor to try to help that student kind of see like, you know, especially our, um, that was when I was uh, in Chicago at National Lewis University. And we had a lot of emphasis in the program on um, multi-tiered uh, systems of support. And so um, the student really had that ingrained, like this is the right way to do things um, in terms of our service delivery. And I can't let the teacher keep on bashing it within our session. It's like, well, let the teacher give her, her truth, acknowledge it, you know, recognize it. And then maybe you'll be able to move forward together with what and you're trying to do. It's, in, yeah, I mean, about Ingrid's thing again of, you know, you've got to accept. You can't just keep saying, but no, but no, but no. Like someone mm-hmm. has to be allowed to kind of present and then, you know, you're kind of thinking about representation, but you, there's such movement needed from you as the consultant rather than you've got to get to where I am. Yeah. It's really a reverse thing. of the like, yes, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a reverse, yeah. It's, yes, but this is why you need to move in this direction. Mm. We've talked about learning at, at, at different points and, you know, kind of your, your training people and training new consultants, supervision as a learning relationship, kind of the work that you've done on deliberate practice and, and learning um, new consultation skills. I guess lastly, kind of coming towards the end, we'd love to ask you about your own learning in terms of your future. What do you envisage learning about? And I suppose mm. that's our tangential way of asking about um maybe new research questions that you've you've got in mind, things that you're really keen and excited to find out more about. And indeed, anything that you feel <clears throat> we as a profession, questions, learning questions that we could be posing uh, to ourselves or, or to one another about consultation. Yeah, there's, I think there's just a lot of room for a good consultation research. So <laughs> anyone who's listening out there, uh, that's like just wide open. Um, uh, for things that we can study and learn about. I'm personally just really interested in um, a lot of these interpersonal process dynamics as I've um, talked about. Um, I think we've um, you know, established a, a good foundation um, of consultation research. Um, you know, a lot of uh, you know, wonderful work um, over many years um, that you know, as I, I feel like lucky to be able to you know, build upon. Um, uh, with my own work, um, I think for me, part of it, and you, you know, talked about learning has been to focus on consultation, training, and supervision with my research, um, because there's been very, very little on that. And we know when you look at like what people do in courses, that the process skills, which I think are so foundational, I mean, we've spent an hour talking about them, you know, they're so foundational to the process of consulting effectively, yet we know that they're not emphasized within courses um, in the United States, that people aren't necessarily um, spending time talking about multicultural school consultation or um, process dynamics and the communication skills. And so um, for me, that's been a really interesting area of research and trying to figure that out. So um, my like uh, most recent studies have looked at this deliberate practice approach, which um, you know, started with Anders Ericsson's work in expertise over so many years, uh, multiple decades, you know, um, and then has recently started to be incorporated into the psychotherapy um, research world where people are looking at, okay, how do we create um, really effective um, psychotherapists and what are the training practices that are needed? And so in reading some of that literature, I thought, wow, this is like really could apply to, um, you know, how we work with new consultants and building these skills um, towards competence and eventually expertise. And so um, I've been looking at, uh, you know, how, just even for starters, the micro skills of these communication skills um, if, with a focus on the big three for starters of paraphrasing, clarifying and reflecting feelings. And how can we get students to practice this um, in a goal-oriented way, a little bit maybe beyond, uh, you know, w- within their zone of proximal development where they feel like they're developing the skills, sufficient practice opportunities with someone observing it, providing feedback, um, and then iteratively continuing to grow. And so we just did a randomized control study um, that is in the journal School Psychology um, that um, what we found was that the um, folks that had training as usual. So they took a, you know, a course that was one semester long 
um, that they gain self-efficacy for their communication, but their skills and those three skills I mentioned earlier did not um, show the same growth. Didn't, they didn't grow um, as compared to those that were doing this deliberate practice training that involved recording yourself, watching your own video, having a supervisor um, kind of look at which skills you use, give some feedback all online. Um, and those students increase significantly in their self-efficacy, significantly more than the other group and um, improve their skill performance. That um, to me was really impactful. And then now, right now we're looking at the data qualitatively and in looking at the qualitative differences, it appears as though the um, group who was in the, the deliberate practice training um, reduced to almost nothing their um, advice giving um, in response to a teacher consultee, it was a simulated uh, teacher. So she had kind of had a video and says, you know, the student Jordana is having difficulty. She's zoning out, did like a little two minute spiel request for assistance. And then they had to respond and record their response. So folks that had just training as usual before the course and after the course kind of communicated in the same ways, you know, they offered advice, they offered hypotheses, they, um, used some skills, but not necessarily, it was kind of variable. But after the training, they were using the skills in a sequence of paraphrase, uh, followed by a clarification um, to make sure that they understood the teacher. And they were not offering advice. Questions weren't kind of double-barreled, multiple questions at once. So um, that's what we're looking at now. And I just think there's a lot of room this, for this type of training and supervision to be researched um, in all sorts of different areas related to consultation, um, to be replicated with different um, groups. So we're thinking about, for example, um, looking at behavior analysts and how they communicate where, you know, um, their, their technical knowledge might lead to more jargon or other things potentially within communication. Can we teach some of those basic listening skills in a way that would help them effectively consult on, you know, behavioral issues in schools or clinical settings or medical settings? Um, can we do this in an interdisciplinary way? Are there, you know, there's so many possibilities. Can we do it to practice skills for contracting for consultation, you know, and so on. So uh, that's kind of where, where my head's at is always about, you know, how do we keep on improving training in ways that um, people can take with them? You know, I get a lot of uh, each semester people saying, you know, hey, can I see your syllabus? Or like, what are some of the activities that are happening? Um, and I, I'm always willing and happy to share things. Um, and I, you know, I just am all about creating resources that, you know, that teachers and supervisors find helpful to um, work with students and that students who are learning these skills can use and feel like really help them um, apply uh, competent uh, consultation skills in action. Zara, I wanted to leave any last question or last comment that you wanted to, to bring before we finish up. Yeah, so usually we ask about the uh, one book recommendation. <laughs> recommend anyone that's listening, either a book or a paper. It's a book or a paper. I feel like I have so many different things that I could <laughs> talk about. But I have so some like oldies that are like my, you know, my classic reads. Um, the uh, we, And we talked about earlier, like um, Sylvia Rosenfield's Instructional Consultation from 1987 um, is still relevant when you read that. It's unbelievable that that has held up and in, in the way that it does. Um, and we have built upon that in our um, textbook that you referenced um, earlier. Um, the Instructional Consultation Teams book gets at more of a systems level um, uh, application. Early on as a grad student, I read Kaplan's Mental Health Consultation from 1970. And um, I feel like there's still relevance there. Anything from um, uh, Terry Gutkin, uh, I still have, you know, he's retired now, but um, lots in my syllabi across uh, courses from him that students find really helpful in terms of ecological consultation. Um, and then Edgar Schein's work um, has, you know, really impacted um, the way that I think about things. So his classic one is process consultation. And then he has a series of um, books on like humble consulting, humble inquiry, helping in schools that I would recommend. Um, so those are some of them. There's also like lots of good supervision stuff out there. Um, like, 
Mark Swardlick and Dennis Simon have a book um, on a school psychology specific supervision model um, called the Developmental Ecological Problem Solving Model. That's really comprehensive. And then there's a more um, kind of a toolkit um, one that Megan Guiney has done where it's very accessible with lots of resources for supervisors. So those are a couple I would recommend. And then one last one I'm going to say is uh, Sherry Proctor and David Rivera did a book on critical theories in school psychology and um, school counseling, and they t- it's tied explicitly to supervision. And it's incredible. It just came out um, and has these really rich case studies um, that are um, really helpful for students to work with. I've already started incorporated it, incorporating it in courses that I teach. So I should, uh, just as a conflict of interest, say that a number of the, uh, like there's two supervision books and then my book with Sylvia are in a book series that I'm the editor of the book series. So just to recognize that, but I, <laughs> so I do have bias, but they are really good. And, uh, the book series is focused on supervision. So that's where, where you'd find them. Danny, thank you so much, both for the, the recommendations and indeed for, for agreeing to come on to the podcast. It's been so fascinating. And there's so many things I feel like we just sort of mildly scratched the surface of. So we might kind of selfishly ask you to come back at a different <laughs> time and, and do it. But yeah, just to say thank you so much for, for coming. And um, yeah, it's been lovely to speak to you. You too. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm honored.